Well, good morning. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Great, great. Uh, Joe and I have kind of reached the stage now where, you know, the kids come home for Thanksgiving. We don't travel as much, and, and uh, I don't really miss putting kids in car seats and driving places. I kind of enjoy that. So we we, we blessed to have a couple of the girls home, and Thanksgiving morning, got up and with my niece Stephanie and ta- nephew Taylor and ran in a 5K, uh, start the morning, and then spent the rest of the day putting those calories back in my body. And it was good. So I hope uh, you did uh, had a great Thanksgiving as well, and that the tryptophan is well out of your system by now. So welcome. We, we're to, welcome to the third and final week in our series that we're calling One Good Turn. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at the challenging but very good news that Paul's words written to Timothy for those who are rich in this world applies to most of us. In week one, we looked at what it meant to be rich in good deeds. And last week, we looked at what it means for us to be generous givers. Today, this week, we're going to tie it all together. This is also the first Sunday of Advent, and we lit the hope candle this morning, as you can tell. So in tying this all together, we're going to talk about where our hope should lie and our need to contend against the arrogance and the migration of hope that wealth and riches can cause. Now, the overarching text for this series has been and is 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Alan just read it. I want to read it again just to get us started this morning, starting with verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves, as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And the good news is, is that we can do this. In Christ, we can live the life that is truly life, the good life. But to do that, we need to learn to be rich. And part of being good at being rich is guarding against what I'm calling the migration of hope. Now, having wealth is not a sin. We don't need to feel guilty because... We were born or we live in this country where most of us land in the top 1 to 2% of the world's population and wealth. Making you feel guilty is not the point. Our point is simply that these scriptures apply to us. Wealth isn't evil. The Bible is full of successful wealthy people including Abraham, Joseph, Daniel, David, Lydia, Philemon. In fact, Over the history of the church, wherever Christianity goes, prosperity often follows. So when you think about it, if you follow Jesus and transformation starts to happen in your life, you will start to become more honest, hardworking, and disciplined, and those things can often lead to wealth. However, Paul, as Paul is warning Timothy, it can also bring its own set of potential problems. In, in my studying, I came across a statement from commentator uh, Kent Hughes. that He cites that even early Puritan writers in the 17th century were alarmed at the trend toward materialism in the New England society, noting a common, though not inevitable, effect of Christianity. And Hughes states, authentic conversion to Christ so changes people's lives that bad habits often fall away and they become better workers and managers as they live out the scriptures, resulting in economic prosperity. But tragically, in some cases, um, the prosperity and material wealth devour the same Christianity that gave them birth, especially in the second and third generations, end quote. So what was true for the Puritans was also true for the new believers in the wealthy Mediterranean port cities like Ephesus, where young Timothy pastored. 
As, as Pastor Stacy has shared, Paul is writing to Timothy about what was apparently a problem in his churches uh, where, where he was serving. There are rich people who have come to faith, who have come to know God, but to use our terms, they haven't fully figured out what it means to follow Jesus and to embrace God's purposes or pursue God's purposes in the world. And we don't have all the details as to what these new, how, and the ways that these new rich Christians were failing. We only have Paul's answer of instruction to Timothy on how he should deal with them. So what was true for the Puritans, what was true in Ephesus, is certainly true for us today. As we made it clear the past two weeks, if your household income is 33000 or higher, you are a one percenter, meaning that you're in the top one percent of people currently living in the world statistically in terms of wealth. I'm a one percenter. We have a room full of one percenters. When we read those who are rich in this text or in other texts in the Bible, our temptation is to think about the person who has more than you. But I think we need to see ourselves here. In fact, Andy Stanley states in his book, How to Be Rich, which is really our inspiration for this series, that statistically speaking, the difference between you and Bill Gates is, is, is statistically smaller in difference than between you and someone living outside the United States, or, or some people living outside the United States. So no, rich in this text is you, and I want to be clear, it's not to condemn you for being a, or me for being a one percenter, or even if you make $25,000 a year and you're in the top 2%. The purpose isn't to condemn you, but just to name the reality. As we've seen, and we'll see, we have some commands from Paul. We have some warnings here, but we also have some really, really good news that we can take hold of the life that is truly life, the good life. So let's unpack this a little bit. Admittedly, we've come at it in a, a unique order. Stacy has spent the past two weeks in verse 18, hitting on Paul's command to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And today we're going to back up into verse 17. And Paul instructs young Timothy to what? To command those who are rich in this present world. Now, Stacy referenced last week, command's a strong word. But Paul, I think Paul is writing this out of his concern for the spiritual state of these wealthy believers. Commentator James Dunn states that you know, the writer here kind of pricks the balloon with his adjectives in, this, in the, this present world, or as the New Revised Standard Version states, in this present age. And I want, you to, I want you to hold on to that because I want to come back to that in a minute this morning. But what are the two commands? First, don't be arrogant. As other versions say, your version might say high-minded or proud. Again, James Dunn states, riches can tend to make people proud and haughty, encouraging the thought that the wealth either gives them superiority or they can just simply buy whatever is wanted. Now, the English Standard Version uses that word haughty. That's not a word I use a lot. But commentator J.N.D. Kelly suggests that to not be haughty means that the rich are not to throw their weight around or about and use their affluence to get the better of people who are less well-off. Andy Stanley states that wealth can distort your, your sense of reality. You can feel that because this wealth thing has happened to you, it's because of your superior knowledge or your ability. Now, whether that's true for you or not, I think what can be true for all of us, no matter what we make, is that when we're around someone who has more than us, we often feel just a little bit more respect for the opinions they share and the decisions they make. You know, in my careers in, in, in healthcare and as a pastor and even on some of the boards that I've been blessed to serve on, I, I've encountered some really wealthy people. And many of them are very smart, but most of them are humble 
Christ followers who, in many cases, if you met them on the street, you'd have no idea of their wealth. But years ago, long before Joe and I ever moved to Lafayette, before we ever knew anything about this church or the covenant denomination, I was in a particular work situation with a, with a wealthy individual who was given some significant responsibility and some esteem based on an assumption of his abilities. And in this case, there definitely was an arrogance present in this person. So in time, others, and, and I came to discover that the person really didn't possess the superior knowledge or experience related to that context that had been assumed. In fact, as uh, Oklahoma Sooner coach Barry Switzer put, likes to put it, they appeared to be somebody who was born on third base and thought they hit a triple. Paul's instructing Timothy that the rich should not be arrogant just because they're rich. Now the second thing Timothy is to command those who are rich in this present world to not do is to not, not put their hope in wealth. Why? Because it is so uncertain. It was uncertain then and it's uncertain today. But you see, this is, this is hard not to do. This is a challenge right here. As, as one one percenter to another, this is hard for all of us. Hope can often accompany riches, that's a fact. But placing our hope in the riches is something different. And I think this is where Paul is drawing the line here. But when a Christian becomes rich, their hope can start to shift from God and his provision to the very riches God provides. And Stanley calls this a migration of hope. Now many of us were challenged with this hope migration and the recession about a decade ago in 2008 and 2009 and all the fear that surrounded that. All right. Stanley tells a story in his book, How to Be Rich, of, of a time that he and his wife, Sandra, attended a dinner with a couple who were billionaires. And he states I, he, that they knew they were billionaires because it had just been in the national news a week prior that they'd sold one of their companies for billions of dollars. All right. Stanley states that uh, the conversation turned that night to the economic threats that they're facing. And Stanley says, with a serious tone, the couple remarked, how careful you need to be with your money because there's just no end to the way in which you could lose it. And Stanley says, their, their concern was sincere and their fear was authentic. And when it was over, he and his wife Sandra exchanged a look that silently communicated what they were thinking. Wow, if the billionaires are worried about money, then we're all in big trouble. But Stanley concluded, there are perceived needs that even a billion dollars can't meet. Many of us have more than we ever have had. We have more than perhaps we ever dreamed we would have. More than, more than we ever thought we have, but we worry about it more than we ever thought we'd worry about it. And it's easy to fall into the scarcity mindset where there never seems to be enough. If you let your hope mind create, there could be an endless stream of what ifs. You know, what if the stock market? Well, what if my health? What, what if my children? And before we know it, without meaning to, our hope migrates. Now, when we preached in 2014 this series we called How to Be Rich, uh, we, during, during that series, we built a statement as we went along, and each week we would recite that statement. And part of that statement was, I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. So the book of Proverbs is full of, of verses that give us wisdom on how to handle money. If you've been through Crown Financial Study or through Financial Peace University, you've undoubtedly studied these verses. Verses about the importance of saving. Verses about the importance of, of not being in debt, which is servitude. Verses about not co-signing a loan. Verses about the importance of a budget, 
counting the cost before you build a tower, etc. However, Proverbs also warns us about putting our hope in wealth. Proverbs 18.11 states, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Now notice the key words there. They imagine it. It's in their mind. It isn't fact. It isn't the impenetrable fortified wall that they imagine it to be. Proverbs 28.11 states, The rich are wise in their own eyes. One who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are. But perhaps the most convicting illustration comes from Jesus himself in what's called the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12.16-21. Luke states that Jesus told him a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So Paul and Solomon and Jesus himself are saying, do not put your hope in things but a person. Not in wealth, but in him who richly provides. Now again, wealth isn't evil. Wealth in itself isn't dangerous. However, the attitudes of the mind and the habits that wealth can create can be dangerous. The, wealth that are, the wealthy that are addressed in this passage and, and, and most of the other passages in the New Testament are not told to sell or give away their riches, but they're told to be rich. As Jesus said, to be rich toward God. Okay, so we can exegete this verse 17 into two don'ts and a do. Two warnings and a promise, if you will. So Paul instructs Timothy to command those who are rich to, one, don't be arrogant, and two, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but do command those who are rich to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. The, The promise is that our God, who is rich, our God who owns the cattle on a thousand hilltops, The creator, our God who's the creator and owner of all that we see with our eyes and all that we possess that we get to steward over, that God has our back. You know, notice it says he will provide everything for our enjoyment. Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians 9, as Alan read, Paul writes, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every, in every good work. And he continues, Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your, your unrighteousness. Your righteousness. Paul then adds, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And then he concludes, And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So the best illustration I can think of regarding our hope and our hope migration comes from Francis Chan. Uh, if you've been in a small group with me uh, or been in a context where I'm teaching, you've, you've, you've heard me share this. I, I use it a lot, admittedly, and frankly, I do that because I haven't found anything better. Uh, many of you have heard this illustration or you've seen this illustration online. Again, this is totally Francis Chan's illustration. I'm just a guy who really, really likes it, okay? Okay, so now imagine that this rope that I have on stage goes all around this, this room, the sanctuary. In fact, imagine that it's infinite. It, it doesn't end. It goes around, around the world infinitely. 
Now, imagine that this infinite rope is a timeline of your existence. Now, imagine that this red part represents your time on earth. So the red represents a few short years on earth, and eternity is represented by all this white. When our hope migrates from faith in God, when it migrates from hope, from what's going to happen to, all, to us for all of eternity, to hope and wealth, we start to worry. We spend our time and our energy worrying, planning, obsessing about the red. Now, when Francis Chan shares this, he gets pretty edgy, he gets pretty provocative, um, saying that some of you have the mentality like, I need to work really hard right here. I got to save, save, save right here so I can enjoy this part right here. You say, what about all this? The Bible says what I do during this red part determines what I will do for millions of years. See, we only get one chance at this, and then comes eternity. We don't get to come back and do this over again. And it's foolish just to plan for this. And Paul is saying the same thing here when he instructs Timothy to command those who are rich, don't put your hope in wealth. It's uncertain. Put your hope in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Put your hope in God for his provision for all of this. Paul basically says elsewhere, I'm going to keep my eyes on the finish line, which, which I interpret to be the, the end of this red part right here. Paul says, I haven't finished it yet, but that's my goal. See, we can really get sucked into worrying about the red. It happens to all of us, especially when we're rich. What, what's going to happen to the world economy? What, what, what will happen in our country? What's it going to be like for my children or my grandchildren? Do I have enough? Have I prepared enough? I don't know. One thing I know for certain, that each of us will come to the end of this red in one way or another. And at some point, everyone leaves it all behind. So Randy Alcorn and it has a great illustration in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Now imagine for a moment that you're alive at, at, during the end of the Civil War. And you are living and, and fighting in the South, but your home and your loyalties and your passion are in the North. But while you're in the South, you've accumulated a good amount of the currency in the South, the Confederate currency. So suppose you know that the North is going to win the war soon. What are you going to do with the Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer to that question. You cash that stuff in, that worthless money in, for U.S. currency. The only money that's going to have any value once the war is over. Now, this is Randy Alcorn's illustration. I'm going to be sensitive uh, to the topic. Thank God that Confederate money is worthless, right? But likewise, the currency of this world will be worthless at the end of the red. You can't take it with you. The only currency that has value in the white is what it says in verse 18, our present service, being generous, being rich toward the kingdom of God. Now, in my opinion, our, our country's system of democracy in the country that we live in is probably the best mankind has come up with. But my hope is not in it. My hope is not in our economic systems. My hope is not in capitalism or, or democracy. And from what I can tell from the whole counsel of God, the white is not a democracy. It's not capitalism. The white is a kingdom with a king. Amen? Amen. 
Our hope is not in these pieces of paper that represent something else, these pieces of paper that we exchange as value. Now, in the white, in the kingdom to come, I don't know the details of how exactly Jesus is going to provide for our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth. See, Scripture doesn't give us that level of detail, so we must place our hope and trust in Christ that he's going to do that. I don't know those details. You don't know those details. But is anybody really worried about it? Not really, right? On one level, it's kind of easy because we don't have a choice. What can we do about it? Our hope is that God is good and he is good and that eternity is going to be great and it will be. So we trust Christ for his provision then. But how often do we fuss and worry and how often does our hope migrate in now in the red? Now I'm not saying don't be wise. Don't be a wise steward including spending less than you make or saving or being generous. There are plenty of scriptures verses that say otherwise and ECC teaches those stewardship principles and financial peace but today this is about our hope what is the antidote to the migration of hope I have a couple of thoughts now first an acknowledgement hope migration I can sneak up on us and my first thought is that we need to train ourselves to recognize it when it happens in fact a few weeks ago it happened to me I was driving to a board meeting in Chicago and, and that day my mind was full of thoughts. I'd stopped here at the office earlier that day to get some things done and kind of had to work my way out the door. So I'm driving. Uh, I had a podcast on, but I wasn't even really listening to it. Instead, I started to think about a couple of financial things that were going on for Joe and I, and I started to worry about some things. Now, mind you, I had just been studying these verses a few days earlier. And I realized what was happening to me. And I felt a conviction. And my inner critic was saying, Kurt, I'm not sure you're really qualified to preach this sermon. So so here's what happened. I shut off the podcast that I wasn't listening to. And I drove and I prayed for the next hour and a half in silence. And during that time, God in his goodness, my thoughts turned from all this anxiety in the red to eternal things, to the eternal reality of the white. And... God in his goodness was giving me assurances of the fact that he loves me as a son. And he is providing for me. He always has provided for me. He always will provide for me. Even in ways I can't even imagine. As scripture says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what has no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So frankly, as I drove and prayed that day, a good chunk of what I'm sharing with you is kind of given to me. So when I got to the hotel in Chicago, I ran inside and tried to write as much down as possible. So how about you? When you're alone, when you're in silence and thinking, maybe when you're driving in your car, you're staring out your window, what do your thoughts gravitate toward? Scarcity and worry? Thinking about whether you're prepared for the next worst case scenario your mind can concoct? If so, perhaps this is an indication that your hope has migrated. Or it's migrating toward wealth, toward provision, toward hope for what this world can do for you. Or do you think about eternal things? Is your hope in Christ? Are you hopeful because maybe you see each day as an opportunity to be welcoming to someone? Are you hopeful because you see each day as an opportunity to embrace how God might be using the circumstances of that day to transform you more into his, his image? Are you hopeful because... You expect to look around and see an opportunity to be present to to another, to be an ambassador for God and his kingdom. 
Is your mind on the things Paul instructs Timothy to command the rich to do in verse 18 that we've looked at the past couple weeks? I think that's the second antidote. Doing good, being rich in good deeds, being generous and willing to share. You know, if I were to put a bow on this entire series, I think Paul is saying to Timothy, command those who are rich not to do these two things that we talked about today, but rather put your hope in God and he will take care of them. Command them to do these two things in verse 18. Basically, good deeds and generosity. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. See, there's benefits to come later. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6.20. They lay up treasures for the white. Now, Paul is in no way opposed to saving for the future. He doesn't condemn saving for the future in the red. But I'll tell you what, both he and Jesus both strongly encourage saving or storing up treasures for the future in the white. They symbolically cash in that worthless currency, that Confederate money, for the real stuff, for the life that's truly life. See, the kingdom of God is both here now and yet we wait for it. We can have life that's truly life, abundant life, the good life. Even while we're here in the red. Even as we wait for this point of crossing over. So we're in the season of Advent. The prophet Isaiah and the people of Israel waited in hope for the Messiah. They waited in hope for the redemption of God's people. And we wait for the return of Christ. We eagerly wait for the white. Our hope lies in the fact that we're not only citizens of his kingdom here and now while we exist in the red, but throughout all this white that's going to stretch on for eternity. So we wait and hope for the white, but we don't neglect our, our mission while we're here in the red. All that time guarding against the migration of hope, being rich in good deeds, doing good, being generous and being willing to share. Jesus said something really interesting on the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper. He left us with this, this little gift of a reminder of what is to come, perhaps, I think, to give us hope. Now, he told his disciples that he would not drink from the fruit of this vine again until he returns in the establishment of his kingdom. You know, he's, playing, he's waiting for something, too. For that, we hope. We wait. See, we're all going to come to the end of this red one way or another, either by death or by Christ's return. Where does our hope lie? Let me end, let me end with the very end, the end of the book, the last thing written. The Apostle John writes in Revelation twenty-two twenty. John says, he, meaning Jesus, testifies to these things and says, yes, I am coming soon. To which John writes, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, as we come to your table, Lord, we do so with expectancy. For we are also people who are waiting. Lord, we eagerly wait with you for that day, that day in the white, where we will share the joyful feast with you. And God, may our hope lie there. God, help us to guard and recognize when our hope migrates toward the things of this earth, toward things in the red. May we have eyes to spot it and may we repent when we recognize it. May we be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. 
And may we experience the life that's truly life, the good life. And God, I pray that there's something in our hearts that we have not surrendered to you, that you would come and deal with us even now as we prepare to come to your table. Amen. It's now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who put, humbly put their trust in Christ um, and desire that his help that they might lead a holy life. All that are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them. All that walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life following the commandments of God and walking henceforth in his holy ways are invited to draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament. Come to this sacred table not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of his mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek his presence and pray for his spirit. Please join me now as we, we're going to pause for a time of silent prayer and confession. After a, prayer, after a time of silence, we'll pray the corporate prayer of confession that will be on the screen behind me. So let's go to him now in silence. Pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought.